0: Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Swartstrom. On today's show, Russia. It's been in the news a lot. Uh, Russia's played a role in our election, according to some. And uh, it's been a while if uh, we haven't ever actually talked about Russia on the show. So I'm excited for today's episode. Joining me to talk about Russian surveillance and Russian hacking is Ashin Kazarian, a legal fellow at Tech Freedom. Ash, thanks for joining the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Welcome to the, uh, the first Tech Policy Podcast that you recorded.
1: Finally, I mean, it's been a while since you've promised me to do this.
0: Yeah, yeah, clearly it was my fault. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, uh, Ash, of course, surveillance has been an issue ever since Edward Snowden's revelations in the United States. And the U.S. has gotten a lot of flack for this. But one of the greatest ironies is that he is now living in Russia under political asylum. And Russia isn't exactly the best when it comes to surveillance on its citizens, to put it lightly. So I'm just curious to start off, what's the mood like in Russia surrounding Edward Snowden? I mean, we know that Americans either think he's a traitor or a hero or maybe something in between. What do Russians think about Edward Snowden living in Russia?
1: Well, I'm obviously qualified to talk about what Russians think and their opinion, public opinion, but... um, Because you are Russian. Because I am Russian. (laughs) Um, Majority of people I've talked to think that having Snowden in Russia is kind of a win for Russian diplomacy and it's kind of in your face to America as if you see we're not as bad. Like, actually, your democracy is bad because he's running away from you and we're so great. We're providing him home and food and he's having so much fun here. Going to a ballet and stuff.
0: (laughs) He really goes to the ballet?
1: I mean, I've seen him do like water cruises on the Moscow River.
0: So what do they think about his message, right? Because he spends a lot of time in Russia making appearances through Skype at events in the United States. And our friends at the Cato Institute have interviewed him. And my friend Amy Stepanovich at Access has interviewed him. And Kevin Bankston at The New America. All these tech policy people have interviewed him. And his message is about surveillance and the dangers of surveillance and the importance of encryption and things like that. What do Russians think about his message given the checkered history that Russia's government has when it comes to issues of surveillance.
1: Well, it's interesting because they have this kind of double-sided approach where they believe in his message when it comes to American surveillance and they believe that he should have exposed all the secrets he exposed. However, when he started talking against recent Russian laws that that were passed and that kind of allows surveillance without any warrants or, you know, any checks in place, um, people started talking about, uh, should we send him back? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> wow. So it was, it was really that quick. So as long as he was there shitting on the United States, it was totally fun. But as soon as he turned his eye towards Russia, it was not so fun. And it's not exactly like he has a lot of incentives to poke the bear, right? I mean, he's living under asylum in Russia. If that relationship were ever to fracture, he could be in an American jail cell overnight, right? So why would he stick his neck out like that?
1: Well, he he's trying to be this purist and he you know, doesn't filter, at least that's what he says. To be fair, though, he started speaking against uh, Russian uh, surveillance laws only recently, whereas they've been getting worse and worse for years now. Maybe it took him a while to get into the topic because it's quite a complicated topic. Not a lot of people know how exactly they work. Maybe he just felt like this new law push um, this summer was the biggest one. But yeah, um, I don't know. Maybe he felt comfortable enough or he knew that another country will give him asylum Yeah. Maybe he's tired of Russia.
0: (laughs) That could be. And maybe he's just emboldened by how long the asylum has lasted and how basically free he's been, you know, to some extent. Uh, So what are these laws? Let's get into the legislation that has, you know, as you said, prompted him to speak out against Russia. Uh, In June, legislation was introduced. Many have dubbed it the big brother laws, um, including Edward Snowden. And uh, like we said, it takes a lot for someone like him to speak out against the country that's hosting him and being so kind. Uh, but what are these laws really big brother? I mean, is this something that Russians should be concerned about, that Americans should be concerned about?
1: Well, you tell me if all Russian telecommunications companies now have to store up to a year every single communication that goes on and surrender it to law enforcement at first you know, request. Um, also, they have to themselves pay for the whole infrastructure to, I mean, it's hard to just kind of record everything. Um, yeah, there's a reason
0: that companies try to delete data that they're not using because it's expensive to store data, right? It's not cheap. So this is a mandate that they store the data and like you said, they have to pay for it.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, um, and having, um, even if you have end-to-end encryption by the new laws, you actually have to surrender the keys to it. The companies or the apps have to surrender the keys to Russian law enforcement.
0: So, how would that work with something like WhatsApp? I mean, we've talked on the show about WhatsApp before and what makes WhatsApp unique. And now other apps like Facebook Messenger are coming along and doing the same thing is end to end encryption. Like you said, it's the idea that the sender and the receiver are the only two people who can see a message. WhatsApp can't see it, the government can't see it. There is no third end, it is just end to end. So, if Russia is demanding access and they Actually, technologically can't give them access. Are we going to see what happened in Brazil where a judge shut down WhatsApp only to have it open up a few days later? I mean, when there is no technological solution, yet the government is asking you to do something. What's going to happen to -to end-to-end encryption in Russia under these new laws?
1: What's interesting is that the deadline for surrendering all the keys and starting to store data was September 1st, however, it was moved to January 1st. So they, I think they're still trying to figure out how exactly to do it. As of right now, their solution is, uh, why don't you kind of, it's not actually going to be end-to-end encryption when it comes to any communication that goes on in Russia, whereas they're asking companies to build in a secret door, and give them the keys to that door.
0: Yeah, the back door, the the, the classic example we've heard. The United States, uh, the FBI director, Comey, he's been pushing this for a while, the idea that you can just somehow put in a vulnerability that only the good guys, that is the government, can access. And we've seen civil society groups, technologists widely pan this idea as ridiculous, as making cybersecurity less secure. But there are ways around this. Like you brought up a uh, data retention mandate, so let's say you and I have a WhatsApp conversation. Maybe Russia can't do anything about that, but they could pass a law saying that you need to copy, keep a copy of all your messages, which essentially defeats the purpose of encryption. And that could mean literally writing down everything I say on WhatsApp or just storing it in Google Drive or somewhere like that, keeping a backup.
1: Oh, and not only that, actually Russian Post, which is a government public entity, as also have to have a copy of all the communications, which makes no sense right now. Like Russian Post is in shock. They don't know how to deal with this new law because they have to have a copy of every Telegram sent. Some people still do that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, it's a lot of questions, a lot of money that has to be spent and that should be spent by this private companies or like public companies that are still operating, you know, on their own. And, uh, but yeah, the the storage would basically give access um, most of the times without any court warrant to law enforcement to just kind of any communication that is there. So
0: all it really takes is a single law enforcement official to ask a company for a record and there is no due process, you know, what we call it in the United States. There is no, there are no checks and balances. You, You have to just say yes and they don't have to explain why they need it.
1: Well, yes, for the last ten years, uh, step by step, there have been laws introduced that have taken away the checks and balances and the court warrant. So basically if if it's a national emergency security issue, which anything can be, um, the law enforcement can can request anything, any information at any point and then bother with court order retroactively.
0: And like you said, Russian surveillance is nothing new. I mean, it's not like this is the first time that Russia has surveilled its citizens. And it's not like Edward Snowden's revelations in 2013. uh, That wasn't the first time Americans were doing it. This has been going on for a long time, whether it was wiretaps with legacy copper wire telephone wires, or whether it was more modern programs in the 90s with the DEA monitoring phone calls. But what's motivating this new Big Brother legislation? Is it concerns about terrorism. Russia is involved in the war on terror, as is the United States. Uh, Nobody likes ISIS. Everyone hates ISIS, right? So no one likes attacks happening on their soil. Um, Radical uh, Islamism is a problem in countries all over the world. Is that what's motivating this? Or is it the more cynical explanation where Russia is worried about dissent? It's worried about people exposing corruption, people exposing election problems. I mean, do you think this is really aimed at Controlling the citizens, or is this a legitimate counterterrorism effort?
1: Well, the official version is that it's a counterterrorism effort, and it's for national security, and ISIS is getting closer and closer to Russian borders. However, there haven't been any ISIS activities on Russian soil yet. Uh, However, after Russia emerged into Syria, that became a legitimate threat. But what it looks like on the surface, and if you look at the timeline— as Putin's politics got uh, more and more... um,
0: Aggressive.
1: Aggressive, you can say that, (laughs) or more and more kind of um, utilitarian, these laws started piling up and kind of spreading around every single private right the citizens had.
0: And Is there any opposition? I mean, I know that opposition parties in Russia are marginalized for a lot of reasons. Part of it is the way the election system operates with the whole country being treated like one giant district that then gets uh, proportional representation in the parliament. And there are questions about whether the, the parliament is even, you know, a real check on Putin's power. But is there opposition to this? Are there Russians talking about this with, you know, at their kitchen tables saying, what's going on with this big brother legislation? Or is this one of those situations where anyone who opposes it is not patriotic?
1: Well, it's both. So first of all, there are people who are talking about it. There's opposition. There are political parties that haven't actually passed the needed line to get into the Congress, Russian parliament, but they still, you know, campaign and they talked about this issue. Um, And there are conversations at kitchen table, Soviet-style, you know, dissident ideas going on. But um, what you have to understand is that Putin's policies, especially his external policies, have really major support in Russian society. And if that includes, um, you know, suffering through some privacy rights violations, that's okay with them. I mean, if you look at most of the laws that were passed, including the last packet in this summer... Uh, they violate Russian Constitution. Like this is a legitimate challenge that can be brought into Constitutional Court of Russia.
0: Domestically, so this Domestically. wouldn't even involve the UN or the European or Court of
1: Human Rights. No, you can do this in Russia, and the mechanism should work, and the court should uh, find these laws unconstitutional. However, no one wants to challenge these laws. Um, most NGOs are, you know, more worried about their own survival right now because uh, people are more um, focused on the external threats and on making Russia great again.
0: (laughs) I wonder where uh, that phrase came from. Uh, So you talked about how it's not really about terrorism necessarily. How is this going to impact freedom of the press? Because we know that obviously Americans are under surveillance, Russians are under surveillance, everyone's under surveillance. But We like to think that a check on surveillance is the fourth branch of government in the United States or the fourth estate, journalism, um, whistleblowers. Is this going to have a chilling effect on independent media in Russia? I mean, of course, state-run media, this doesn't really change anything, right? It's not going to change the way you are operating necessarily, Uh, But what about those independent journalists who really do take a lot of risks and who do rely on things like encryption to stay undetected and to do human rights work? I mean, is this going to make it harder to be a blogger, to be a journalist, to be a social media user in Russia?
1: This already affected um, a lot of journalists and I mean, a lot of newspapers have been closed and websites have been shut down. Part of um, uh, authority that law enforcement has in Russia is shutting down websites that have extremistic ideas and extremism is basically anything that anti-Russian government. It's a very vague term that they can use to shut down any dissident thought. So that was the first one. The second one was bloggers uh, that have more than 3,000 subscribers actually have to register with Russian um, F- Russian version of FCC.
0: So congratulations, you have 3,000 followers. Now you have to go register with the government.
1: Yes, because you're considered basically a new media kind of figure. And um, that entails that if... Oh, and you're responsible for any content since you register. The second you register, you're po- responsible for any user content on your ah. website. Or if like someone commented on your Twitter, that can get you in trouble too. Facebook comments, it all like I know there are trials uh, for for co- Facebook comments where people get um, sentences and fines for any anti-government ideas uh, expressed on social network.
0: At a very basic level in the United States, we have a protection known as Section 230. Uh, to summarize it briefly, it's basically don't shoot the messenger, right? So if someone on Facebook comments, they are the person who comments is accountable, not the website. And uh, we've talked on the show before about how this was so important to the development of Facebook, YouTube, Airbnb, any website that relies on user-generated content. But the United States is really exceptional in this way, and Russia's not exactly – crazy for not having Section 230. I mean, the United States is really the only one that has something like this on the books, but you could see how opening up every website to liability in that way could be really damaging, and especially with such a low standard. I mean, you mentioned uh, anything anti-Russia. There's also this idea about inciting social discord. I mean, that could be anything, right? So now... So Pussy
1: Riot was inciting social discord right. when they were singing in a church.
0: And that's a famous band that is very anti-Putin, right? And they've had their share of problems and being locked up. They were up. in jail. Yeah. <laughs> when I said that's fair. a way to put it. Yeah, exactly. Put it lightly. But, um, I mean, already it's hard to get independent media in Russia, right? So, I mean, this is just going to make it more difficult because websites now have to police every single thing that comes across their website. And if you see any comment left... I mean, you probably don't even wanna have a comment section at this point, right?
1: Yes, and a lot of independent media did go underground and on the internet and is operating from there. Um, The most um, independent opposition media is called Doors, the rain. And they had to, they were on air, but now they're only online and it's a subscription based service now because there's no other way for them to survive.
0: So you've got a bunch of 400 pound Russians sitting on their couches hacking away. Yes. (laughs)
1: Yes. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't resist.
0: Um, so obviously, you know, the surveillance laws in Russia are trending in the same direction they have been for a while. Uh, the fact that Snowden's living there is an interesting wrinkle there, but I guess nothing too surprising here. But the other issue I wanted to talk about today is Russian hacking in the United States election, because every time you turn on the television in the United States or open your web browser now, you're seeing stories about Russia hacking, WikiLeaks, all this stuff. So first of all, Ash, I got to ask, is Russia trying to influence the United States election?
1: I think you let Russia influence the United States election. I think Russia won the United States election before it even happened. And <laughs> how so? Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the news cycle is all about Russia having this power over U.S. And uh, in Russian media, they're celebrating it because, I mean, it wasn't so long ago when President Obama said, oh, Russia is original power. It's n- not not on the same level with us. And that... Russians take that very close to heart. For us, um, for centuries, like the main struggle of the Russian people was having Russia be on the international stage and respect it and like, acknowledged for everything it does. I mean, that's the reason why Putin went to Syria. He just wanted to kind of uh, reemerge as this world leader who's trying to bring peace well, to also a he's got troubled him. region. He
0: has an ally there, Assad, who was being attacked, and he went to go protect his ally. I mean, not to get too anti-American on the show, but there's a legitimate interest there, right? It's not, it's maybe not just about the posturing or maybe that's the main benefit, but he did go try to defend his ally, right?
1: That is true, however, let's not get into serious no, because no, that not. would take <laughs> another episode. No, um, this is a tech policy
0: podcast. <laughs> yes,
1: um, so in a way we're actually celebrating, even if Russia didn't do the hacking, which I'm not saying it didn't, uh, Russia affected American election and kind of took away a lot of attention from, real issues in the election into this external policy thing with Russia and like a second cold war coming around the corner.
0: And that is such an important point because so much of the focus is on the outcome, right? Will Russia deliver the election to Trump? Will Russia influence the results? Will the percentages that get tallied at the end of the day be changed? Yet you brought up such an obvious point that just the fact that we're talking this way and the fact that people are afraid that Russia's having influence is a victory. It's a public relations bonanza. I mean, the idea that all these Americans now, they're not even focused on the actual information that is being (laughs) revealed through the hacks. They're just like, oh my God, Russia's hacking the United States, it's crazy. And that's part of the plan, right? I mean, that's part of the benefit that whether Clinton wins or whether Trump wins, you've now scored a serious power play. And, you know, when it comes to geopolitics and things like that and showing that your country is influential and showing that you're powerful and maybe distracting from some domestic economic troubles, which many have said that Putin's foreign adventurism is just a way to distract from the terrible economy. But however you slice it, I mean, the fact that I'm asking you, is Russia trying to influence the election? I mean, maybe that's a victory in and of itself.
1: Oh, it definitely is. And um, isn't it? Yesterday, where in Czech Republic, uh, an alleged Russian hacker was uh, arrested, and there is now some talk about extraditing him to U.S. So we'll see how that goes. We haven't disclosed his um, identity yet, but there is some talk that that's the Guccifer 2.0, the uh, guy who actually hacked DNC.
0: Oh, wow. So So that would be that they actually catch someone who was responsible for the famous DNC hack, which revealed some stuff that Bernie Sanders supporters did not terribly enjoy and uh, that led to the resignation of the DNC chair, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. One of the big issues, too, has been whether the Russian hacking is state-sponsored. And we've seen this issue with China, too, because you've got two big countries, a lot of resources, a lot of technical know-how, and a lot of groups that you could potentially put the blame on. You know, especially in China, you've got over a billion people. Russia, you've got over 150 million. It, It... it's conceivable that not every single hack that occurs is state-sponsored, right? Should did Americans have any reason to believe that it's not the Kremlin? Is there any scenario in which it makes sense that a non-state-sponsored Russian actor is doing this stuff? Or should we just assume that every time this shit happens, it's the Kremlin?
1: <laughs> I'd like to start by saying that uh, actually the the legend of powerful Russian hackers was started by the Kaspersky lab, the anti hacking kind of company that is selling, you know, protection anti-virus software Um, 10 years ago or something. And that's when the legend started. So I think that that really helped. And even if it wasn't Russian hackers right now, like everyone thinks it was. And the fact that metadata is showing that like it went through a computer with Russian um, in it, like Russian settings. A lot of people speak Russian. It doesn't have to be Russia. Like people in Poland speak Russian. People in Ukraine speak Russian. All the former Soviet republics. People have computers with Russian settings. That's another thing that I wanted to, you know, say out loud. <laughs> However, there is a lot of talk that actually two groups: the bears, the cozy bear and the fancy bear, um, were behind of um, most, you know, Democratic Party. Um, Attacks and hacks. Um,
0: First of all, can we just note how amazing those two names are, Cozy Bear and Fancy Fancy Bear? Bear. Yeah, because that totally plays into the whole poke the bear analogy that we've always talked about with Cold War politics. With you know how close do you get to setting off Russia? How close do you get to setting off the Soviet Union? You don't want to poke the bear too much, but the bear is nice. It's cozy. It's fancy. I mean, should we We
1: shouldn't be scared of and cozy it, bear. It brings a lot of trouble, though. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and the, the thing is that um, not a lot of people here know is that a lot of Russian law enforcement agencies are actually in um, conflict with each other. So these two groups are two different law enforcement agencies that are trying to work their way up and cozy up to Putin and get more information or, like, have a bigger effect on American politics. And it may not be directly ordered by Kremlin to, like, hey, go into the Hillary server and look up what she's doing right now. But it may be, hey, deal with the situation. let's Let's turn tables on the Americans. It's been too long.
0: Yeah. And that's an interesting point, too. You've kind of brought up the idea that there's competition for Putin's attention and that there are a lot of people in Russia that want to be in Putin's good graces for obvious reasons. Yet he may he might have created a marketplace for hacking where it's essentially like I'm looking for the best and the brightest. And if you got something to show me, go for it. But I'm not going to tell you what to do. Just go do it. And either way, he benefits. I mean, and people keep fixating on this idea that he wants Trump to be president. I mean, what do you think about that? As a, as a Russian, do you really think that Putin cares who wins or that he really thinks he has a chance of putting Trump in the White House? Or is this just about what you said, Russian prominence in the world stage?
1: Well, to be fair, I don't think he really wants Trump to win. If you look at Trump's policies and their relationship with Russia, there is no as many con- deep connections as people believe there are. I mean, if you look really into like all the details, however, um, I mean, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama right now, like the whole Democratic Party has been more anti-Russia than the Republicans, which is weird because usually Republicans are like John McCain. Remember, like he was talking about Russia being the enemy when Russia wasn't really the enemy yet.
0: Well, 2012, I mean, I I have to bring this up because I find it hilarious that Mitt Romney in a debate in 2012 said Russia was our number one geopolitical foe. President Obama mocked him, saying the 1980s called and they want their foreign policy back. Well, here we are. Um, And I'm not saying Mitt Romney was 100% right. Things do change. I mean, the relationship with Russia might have been better, and now it's gotten worse. But you're right. The the Democrats have long poo-pooed Russia as a serious threat, and now it's all they talk about. And it's, like, very convenient to blame all of your problems on Russia every time there's a hack or a WikiLeaks dump because they're the targets,
1: Also, it's important to remember that Trump is unpredictable and Putin is a former um, intelligence officer who likes to know his, uh, you know, opponents and he likes to analyze and predict the next steps. However, with Trump, he has a wild card, whereas with Hillary, I believe, I'm sure they have more information on her and they have.
0: Yeah, at this point, there's a lot of information about Hillary, widely available to anyone with an (laughs) internet connection.
1: (laughs) But also, um, they have an established relationship and are... For secretary of state, foreign minister, he has an established relationship with her, and they can work through the issues, and they can have a dialogue when they want to. With Trump, you don't know what you're getting.
0: Yeah. So, the, and and for any rational actor, and despite all the things that people that Putin does that make people think he's lost his mind, I mean, there is a method to the madness, I'm sure. And a rational actor probably wants another rational actor at the end of the the other end of the table, uh, even though he might weaken a President Clinton by propping up Trump in the short term.
1: Yes. And if you think about it, having Hillary win would actually make Russia, you know, legitimately say, hey, America's against us and like keep up this very tense situation. Whereas if it's Trump, I mean, what you got to do, like if you unwind everything that was done in the last few years, I mean, Russia has to concentrate on its internal problems.
0: Yeah. So the external, the external situation is a nice distraction. uh, So maybe uh, he wants to keep that going. So to wrap up the show, I mean, we've talked about so much today about the U S relationship with Russia and how it's gotten so interesting over the past few years. Where do you see this whole thing going? I mean, cybersecurity is an interesting one. We hack them, they hack us. We act, we both act like it's not happening, but it totally is happening. The surveillance question is very interesting as well as well those uh, mandates that they're putting on companies might affect American products and American companies and and really impact the ability of American companies to offer cybersecurity tools to dissidents and journalists in Russia. I mean, that's an important aspect of encryption and cybersecurity. Where do you see the future going with all these issues and the relationship between the two countries?
1: I'm quite hopeful because um, even with all the trouble and like all the laws that we've talked about, um, I think uh, Russian uh, legislature is going to wiggle out of the mess it created because um, unlike China, Russia was a free country for quite a few years and the market it created and internet and all the marketplaces that internet created can be just easily shut down or, you know, cut off and the iron curtain comes down again. Yeah, that would have
0: a very catastrophic impact in the country, right? To just the, the old internet kill switch idea. I mean, that wouldn't exactly be great for, what's the Russian search engine? I mean, they're like the second biggest... Yandex. Yeah, there's they're the huge company. So that would be a major economic blow oh, no, just absolutely. for
1: that. Absolutely. And there are too many American companies and too many American platforms that exist in Russia. So I believe that there's going to be some solution or a way around or surveillance, but not... An official government uh, allowed surveillance happening.
0: So maybe we're talking about government hacking, which we're actually is also a big topic of discussion in the United States. This idea that if you have good encryption and you can't just have a backdoor into every product, then maybe the only answer is that when government needs to get into something, they hack. I mean, are, and we've seen that Russia can hack, right? I mean, if we assume that one one tenth of what we've seen is true. They've got some skills, right? So maybe the government will just be not putting the burden on the users, not putting the burden on the companies, not mandating that products be a certain way or mandating that people store things a certain way, but just doing what it needs to do using intelligence apparatus to get what it needs.
1: I can't believe I'm saying this, but that's the best case scenario right now. And that will help um, in response to be still connected to, you know, American media, to American public and maybe help with um, international relationships on the next stage.
0: Well, I've really enjoyed having you work at Tech Freedom. And despite geopolitics, I think that we have a very healthy relationship in the office between our American and Russian co-workers. So no problems here.
1: <laughs> Likewise.
0: <laughs> Ash, thanks so much for joining the show. Uh, it's been great talking Russia with you. And we'll do it again soon. Thank you. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, Let us know what you think of the show. Send us an email, media at techfreedom.org. Feel free to pitch topics and guests. Find this podcast in the iTunes store where you can please leave us a review because it will help others find the show. Thanks for
1: listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more
0: about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.